first target audience that you have, you know, it sure isn't the people outside of the game. The first person you need to influence is whatever commander that you're supporting. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We are joined today by Michael Schwilly. He is a major in the Army Reserve. He received his Bachelor of Arts in History degree from the University of Pittsburgh, did some study abroad in the UK, and then he went on to earn a Master of Arts in International Development Study with a focus on security from the George Washington University. For the last several years, He has worked at DIA, the Defense Intel Agency, with BAE Systems as a counterterrorism human operations integrator. He's also working at a psychological operations detachment for the Army Reserve as a company commander of the 100 Soldier Staff Detachment. And since January 2014, he's been working at the RAND Corporation as a project associate. He's been conducting research and analysis for Royal and the National Security Research Division and contributing to projects that relate to national security with a focus on security cooperation, security force assistance, and building partner capacity, and a concentration in Africa and Asia. Major Schwilly, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, John. Glad to be here. I looked through your, uh, your bio and your background and saw that you led an infantry company in Diyala province in Iraq in 2010, and there you were helping to manage some civil military operations. What was that first experience with civil affairs activities like? Sure. So, I guess right off the bat, it's a slight correction there. I was uh, uh, deployed twice in Iraq, and I was a field artillery officer, not an infantry officer. But the first time I was in Iraq, um, the battery that I was part of uh, was, you know, just a brand new second lieutenant, and uh, everybody, uh, the entire uh, battalion, the field artillery battalion, we were all land uh, land owners, so we had an area of responsibility. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of patrolling. Uh, we were uh, securing uh, main supply route, main supply route Tampa, um, in in um, up by Salad in province. So uh, we were based out of Camp Kaji, which was north of north of Baghdad. <clears throat> so that was my first deployment, and that was. Um, that was uh, not too much civil affairs activity was going on on that particular one. Uh, a little more, uh, a little more route clearance, uh, you know, uh, and uh, a little more bombs and bullets, we'll say. But the second time that I went back was in uh, 2008 and 2009, and it was that time that I was attached to an infantry company. I was a forward support or a fire support officer. So I had a fire support team, about five five soldiers, and we were responsible. It was in that capacity that I, um, I did a lot of, of civil affairs, civil military types of operations. So before we crossed uh, over um, from uh, Kuwait into Iraq that second time, I remember taking a class on collateral damage estimation, and that's basically how close a bomb can you drop to a building without you know, destroying it. So that's what I was learning. Um, when I got to Iraq, I wasn't really doing much of that at all. I was, I found myself the, the effects guy. So back, back in 2006, 2007, they took a lot of field artillery officers and they turned them into, uh, they turned the, the fire support cell within the infantry companies into what they called a coist, which was kind of like a mini effects slash intelligence cell. So, so 
I was I was running that in Iraq, but I was also um, in charge of three separate Nahias, which are um, counties basically. They were they were pretty large, um, probably about 300,000 Iraqis. Um, so I would attend city council meetings. I uh, would work with city managers, city planners, mayors, um, and it was really in that capacity that I got my first real experience and um, exposure to civil affairs and civil military operations. Was that something that you took over uh, someone else who was doing that work and that integration before you'd arrived, or was it something you had to start? Yeah, no, so we, we replaced, I think it was, I think it was two or three ACR, the Brave Trumpets, it flips my mind, I think it was two ACR, um, and I w replaced them, and the lieutenant that I replaced, um, he, he, there was definitely some things that were going on, you know, he had a couple different initiatives out there. Um, but uh, I really feel that uh, it was myself and I was partnered up with, there was another captain who was actually a civil affairs captain um, responsible for our AOR. Um, and we partnered up and we really, I feel, took it to kind of the next level. We, um, we were really active going to these different uh, city council meetings and engaging with uh, you know, the, the key planners. Um, across the across you know all of these uh, different sectors, so water and sanitation and sewer and agriculture and uh, you know it, it, well at the same time we were attending these meetings and we, you know, we were focused on a lot of that. There was um, there was a lot of security, obviously um, meetings and things that were going on, and a lot of uh, what we were doing um, in the kind of the to bolster the civilian government really went hand in hand with a lot of the Iraqi military plans at the time. So it was, uh, it was a really an interesting time. Yeah, it sounds like it was fascinating. Now, was it that experience, I guess, when you were in Dallas that wanted you, you know, were you exposed to people in civil affairs or just the type of work that thought made you think, uh, oh, civil affairs is something I want to switch to? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I remember, uh, you know, it was one of the first meetings that I went to when I was there that second time. And um, I, uh, I was working with a, an embedded provincial reconstruction team member. So they had the provincial reconstruction teams that were, that were set up. And then for, and they were up for a couple of years. And then they started to have these embedded pre provincial reconstruction teams. And those were um, individuals from you know, the Department of State, USAID, that um, were out really um, doing a lot of work on the ground, you know, trying to form these councils, trying to, to teach people um, how to hold a meeting, what, what these meetings, you know, how, what, what's in the agenda. You know, we got a copy of Robert's Rules of Order, um, and, and that's really what we used to kind of start um, holding a lot of these meetings. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very interesting. Um, what I would say is that, you know, it was through through those experiences and through the projects that we were, were leading um, that really opened my eyes to, to the power of, of civil affairs and, and what value we have to the milita military commanders that, that we're working for. Um, you know, it's much more than just getting civilians off of the battlefield. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's really an integral part of, you know, winning the peace. You know, you can only, um, you know, you can only kill so many bad guys, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, especially in a counterinsurgency environment, you really need to pull the population away from those insurgent groups. And, you know, the, the things that civil affairs brings to the table to help um, affect that is, um, it, it, it is, is really quite large.
course, it's really it's really impressive to see that. Do you think that your company leadership or battalion leadership in that time already supported the activities you're doing, or is this stuff that you had to come up with? Sure, great question. So the, the first time I deployed was with uh, the 172nd Striker Brigade Combat Team, and then that was in the 0506, and then the second time was uh, we re-flagged as 1st Brigade 25th Infantry Division. And my uh, my battalion commander, both the battalion commander and the brigade commander were, were really excellent, particularly my battalion commander, um, Colonel Brian Reed, who was, um, he really understood um, counterinsurgency and the impact that um, that uh, myself the, and the, the civil affairs teams had in the AOR. So, for example, you know, we, we did a lot of projects, right? So we did uh, vocational school rehabilitation. I can't tell you how many trash removal projects we did and um, refurbishing an asphalt plant, refurbishing markets. I learned and I worked more with poultry and chickens than I ever thought I would like to know in my entire life. Like, so we, we ended up partnering up with the Iraqi grandparent poultry company. And it was, I mean, it was two brothers and they were, um, they were educated in England. Their father, I think, was an uh, economics teacher. And they really had some, uh, you know, state of the art for Iraq, but I mean, some pretty high level biosecurity, um, in these poultry farms. And we were, um, we were really, really instrumental in, you know, getting them some loans and working with USAID uh, and, and securing some funding for them. Uh, and it was a, uh, it was really a great strategy. You know, brought together a lot of disparate groups, um, Sunni, Shia, um, and uh, you know, there was a voucher system that was kind of put in place. But I remember when we, uh, I had to fly down to um, to the Green Zone down in Baghdad and brief some pretty senior uh, USAID officials. Um, and I remember I had to go to my battalion commander and, and, and ask him if it was all right to go down there. And, you know, I told him, gave him the con off and talked about the plan and what we were doing and why this was important. And he just, he didn't really say too much um, during the brief. And then afterwards he said, he said, Shwilly, go down there. Don't mess this up. Uh, that was the, that's the PG version of what he said. But. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, it was, uh, yeah, he, he really did get it. Um, and I, yeah, I really think that had a, a large impact in that, that, uh, that area at that time. That's good to hear. So then you took that experience, one of the civil affairs, and then you were commanding a PSYOP detachment. Are you PSYOP qualified as well as civil affairs? Yeah, so when I came back from that second time in Iraq in 08, uh, in 09, I, um, you know, I, I actually had applied and got accepted to active duty civil affairs. And, you know, after talking it over with my uh, fiance, uh, soon to be my wife, um, we decided that uh, active duty civil affairs wasn't the right path for me. So instead, I uh, I applied and I went to grad school and I, uh, I went to George Washington University and I got my master's in international development studies. And the reason, the whole reason of why I went and got my master's in, in development studies is because I, I didn't see the Army and the U.S. military in general getting out of the, the, the civil military operations business anytime soon. And, um, you know, not disparaging anybody but um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of um, misperceptions and a lot of folks didn't really understand the value of what um, some well-trained civil affairs personnel could do uh, to support you know not only a company a battalion a brigade and so that's why I went and got my master's in, uh, in development studies following that um, I did you know a few years as a, in civil affairs I 
um, I, I did switch over to, to psychological operations, which uh, was, uh, I kind of view civil affairs and, and psyop as two sides to the same coin. We do uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the same uh, type of work, you know, not the same activities, but, you know, we're, we're definitely influencing, um, you know, whether that's a target audience or, you know, a, a select uh, segment of a population. But civil affairs and psychological operations, I mean, that's, that's our bread and butter. That's what we do. Yeah, I guess that's why the command on the reserve side is together. Yeah, that's a uh, <laughs> that's an interesting uh, yeah yeah that that is why I mean I'll, I'm sure that you know you know both used to be under um, you know the, the special operations command and then you know there's been lots of uh, lots of conversation about whether that was the right thing or, or the wrong thing to do. It's uh, it's interesting in my job at Rand I do a lot of uh, force structure studies and you know look at manning and billeting and you know organizations and um, and how things are um, how things are organized and uh, there's definitely some some benefits as well as some negatives uh, uh, having uh, the the active in the the reserve components kind of divorced and not together so I'll just leave it at that. I think we're going to try to have a conversation with the uh, commanding general Yusuf Kapok and uh, ask him that question as well. So we'll get to that in a future episode. So with the PSYOP detachment, uh, Mike, you deployed to uh, Command Joint Task Force Horn of Africa, HOA, which is in Djibouti. Can you describe what you're doing out there? Sure. So that was actually, um, I took command of the psychological operations company after I came back. I was actually deployed as a civil affairs officer uh, to uh, so when I was there, it was uh, 2013, it was pretty much the entire year of, of, of 2013. The environment then was a bit more permissive than it, um, it has been in recent years due to, you know, the threats, the threats primarily of um, Shabab, al-Shabaab in, in East Africa there, as well as, you know, the conflict in, uh, in Yemen and, you know, ISIS. Racial, um, however you want to call them. Um, but when I was there, like I said, the um, you had the ability to kind of get out a little bit more. You know, there were some team houses that were out there. There were some civil affairs teams that were living um, and working in the communities. And I, you know, that uh, did a good job of informing the, the command there at Camp Lemonier of you know how the local population was feeling, what their concerns were. Uh, it was a much different experience than a non-permissive environment from uh, you know my, my previous experiences in Iraq. Um, so for that, I, I had a civil affairs team that was out, that was um, regularly interacting with the, uh, the local community. But my, uh, my primary job, I, uh, I was tasked to be the liaison officer between uh, CJTF HOA and then the French forces in Djibouti, the FFDJ. So the French um, are actually treaty um, obligated to provide security for the country of Djibouti. And, and the French have a, um, a rather large for military presence there. Um, for the French, it's large. For, for the United States, maybe not quite as much. But uh, they have, you know, Air Force and Special Operations, Marines. Um, you know, they have um, all of the services kind of represented there. And they use uh, they use the country of Djibouti as a uh, kind of like as, a, as an NTC, a National Training Center rotation. So they'll rotate units down, um, and then they'll conduct exercises. And uh, it was in that capacity uh, as the liaison officer between uh, those 
demands that I, uh, you know, I reported to the U.S. and the French chiefs of staff, and uh, wow. you know, I just made sure that everything was like lined up, everything was going smoothly, um, helped the plane training activities, um, and everything that I've read, um, you know, since I came back, the uh, the relationship uh, between the U.S. and the French is uh, is particularly strong there, and there's there's a lot more training I think that's going on um, now um, since uh, as compared to you know when I was there in 2013. Do the French have any equivalent of PSYOP or CA? So they had some civil affairs. They had like one or two individuals that were there. So, you know, Djibouti is a, a French-speaking country. Um, so, you know, speaking the language is, you know, that just gives you so so much more. Uh, you, you can do so much more when you, you know, you, you're a native speaker and you can interact with, with the population. Um so, Did you go there um, speaking French as well? Uh, I, I, sp I speak enough to order a glass of wine or, or a beer. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I did all right. It, it definitely, um, I got, got a lot better as I was there. Um, but to answer your question, they did have, um, in the entire command, they didn't have the VA presence um, that uh, U.S. forces did there at Camp Lemonnier. You know, they had a handful of individuals. Um, and then as far as psychological operations, you know, I honestly never kind of came across anyone um, on the French side that was doing that. The closest that I would say is, you know, they had um, some public public affairs individuals, and they were the ones who were, you know, monitoring Djiboutian media, and, you know, they were working with, um, you know, some of the, the intelligence forces there to just kind of keep a pulse on, um, you know, what the threat was, where the threat was emanating from, as well as, um, you know, the local Djiboutian population. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. One CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Having been to Djibouti and, and I guess to Iraq, um, let's go with Djibouti. What tips would you have for any CA teams that are heading over there? Because they're pretty routine rotations of CA teams, uh, not companies, but probably teams at that level who rotate through HOA. How would you say uh, they, should rec they should prepare for their missions? So, uh, interestingly enough, I think it was last week, uh, my team sergeant, um, for my rotation in 2013 is, uh, is actually back in, uh, in the area right now. So I, I had a conversation with him just to kind of get me up to speed. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they have a, uh, I think there's a civil affairs battalion, a battalion headquarters that's there as well as, um, several, uh, teams that are, that are in the AOR now. You know, I would say, you know, my recommendation would be, you know, see what resources are, are out there. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of folks, there's a lot of articles that have been in um, PRISM, in uh, the interagency journal, um, a lot of stuff that has come out of uh, the National Defense University, uh, PKSOI, what is that, Peacekeeping and Stabilities Operation Institute. You know, there's a lot of good material out there um, that talks about um, what, you know, what you can do, what's possible, um, some ways to kind of think outside of the box. Um, so I, I would say, you know, do your research, um, you know, make some phone calls, talk to some, talk to some individuals uh, from previous rotations um, and see what, what they have done. You know, try to get a sense of what, um, you know, the, while the mission hasn't changed much, um, I don't think since 2013, you know, the individuals change and, you know, um, you have to, you have to be flexible. One of the Marines have a, a saying with it's Semper Gumby, um, you know, ever, ever flexible basically. And, you know, the first thing, you know, in, in pulling, I guess, a little, um, a little of my psychological operations background, you know, you have to analyze your target audience. And, you know, civil affairs professionals need to do that just as well as psychological operations professionals. And the first target audience that you have, you know, it sure isn't the people outside of the gate. The first person you need to influence is whatever commander that you're supporting. So you need to, you know, you need to have your um, your capabilities brief, uh, wired, wired pretty tight. And you have to know what capabilities that you have, what you can bring to bear, how you can leverage your specific expertise as a civil affairs professional um, and, you know, succinctly and uh, articulate that to, to whatever commander that you're supporting. You know, otherwise, and I've seen this numerous times, you're going to have a box of crayons and you're going to be told to go sit in a corner and color a little picture because, you know, you're not, you're not going to have the confidence of, of that commander. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, that's the first thing that I would say. <laughs> that's great advice. Do you feel like the whole missions are on sort of a conveyor belt that we just rotate personnel for similar missions going out the gate, or I mean, how much flexibility really is there for a new team coming in to reshape what they're doing? Yeah, no, that's a good question, John. So, you know, again, I would say, you know, it, it's really up to, so first, right, it's not a, um, you know, it's not a declared, it's not in Afghanistan, it's not in Iraq, right? So who has primacy in Djibouti? It's, it's the Department of State. So right. anything that you're doing in that country, um, you know, either the chief of mission or the charge d'affaires is going to be the one who's, you know, saying, yes, you know, civil affairs can go out, they can do this, they can't do that. Um, you need to understand, get get on and read what the um, the ITC is, the ITC, IICT, the, the different country strategies. So there's from, and these are documents that are put out from the State Department. Uh, I believe they're unclassified, they might be FOUO, uh, but if you have a CAC card, you should be able to go on it and find out what it is. And, you know, see what the, well, what is the economic plan? What's the economic, you know, line of effort? What's the, the public diplomacy um, effort? Um, within Djibouti and, and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what they're doing, um, and how the, the embassy is operating is going to give you some, uh, some clue as to, you know, the things that you can and can't do when you get there. But, you know, ultimately, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, the decision of, of the embassy and, and of the command, uh, as to what you can and can't do. But, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not trying to be a, uh, you know, a naysayer here. Um, I'm just saying that you're going to have to be kind of, uh, you know, creative to, to work within those 
those boundaries. Uh, but having said that, it's a, uh, I mean, especially for, for young officers and soldiers, you know, especially those who have never had the opportunity to deploy before, it's a, uh, it is a pretty good deployment. Um, uh, you know, Camp Lemonade is not, not bad duty. And, you know, there are opportunities to, uh, to get out and, and work in, uh, you know, other countries in, in the area. You know, there's a lot of training missions that are going on. You know, we're partnered up a lot with, uh, the Ugandans, I believe, and, and, and uh, the Kenyans and, and some of the other countries there. So there are opportunities. Mike, I wanted to ask a, a couple of final questions here about your civilian job. Uh, so you're working with the Rand sure. Corporation. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that your projects relate to security cooperation, SFA or security force assistance, and then building partner capacity. So could you share examples of what those projects are and, and if they relate to your focus area in Africa and Asia? A lot of what I've been doing, especially recently, is it really revolves around the, uh, the creation of the information joint function. And they're doing a capabilities-based assessment for that right now. Uh, and that's going to have huge repercussions uh, across across the force. So it's adding another joint function, which, uh, you know, broken down into Army terms are the warfighting functions. So with the creation of that, um, you know, there's going to be change across the, the dot mill PF spectrum, right? So change to your doctrine and organizations. Um, and as that relates to what they call in the information operations realm, the information-related capabilities of which psychological operations and civil affairs are, are part of, um, there, there's going to be definite changes to, uh, like I said, to, to force structure, to resources, um, to, to a lot of, of uh, a lot of different things. Um, so, having having said that, and, and letting you know that I spent a lot of time doing that, um, the largest uh, study that I that I've done working at um, uh, Security Force Assistance, we were looking at the regionally aligned uh, force concept, the RAF, and we interviewed. It was. Um, one of the brigades, I think it was 1st Brigade, it might have been 2nd Brigade, out of 1st Infantry Division, and they were on the hook to be uh, the RAF force in East Africa. And so, you know, we uh, talked to them about, you know, what their train-up was, what they were doing. Um, they went over there, they deployed for um, 10 months, I think, and then they came back, and then we talked to them about, you know, uh, how that train-up went and, and, and what that looked like. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of good lessons um, with the RAF concept. Um, that we, we got from that study. However, I'm not sure where the RAF concept is, uh, in this day and age. I'm not sure if it's still, uh, going full tilt or if it's, uh, if it's slowly fading it back into, uh, to obscurity, um, with the current rotations, uh, you know, ongoing demand to the Middle East. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, one of the, one of the projects that, that I worked with, um, concerning, you know, security cooperation. And the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, there's been a lot of changes to the authorities and to the funding streams. Um, security cooperation is, it's, it's an amalgamation and it's, it's convoluted and it's, it's very, very confusing. You know, sometimes money is going to come Title 22 out of the United States Code, which is coming from the Department of State. Sometimes it's coming Title 10. Um, there's certain things that you can do. You know, humanitarian civic action, you know, can fund certain things. But, you know, there's uh, there's constraints on that, whether you're training U.S. personnel or um, host nation personnel. 
Um, and Rand has done a lot of good work on, um, you know, measuring what um, the, the effects of some of these programs are and, um, and, and given, you know, a lot of recommendations on um, streamlining that process and making it, um, you know, more user-friendly. Because unless you are a, an expert at security cooperation um, and have really spent a lot of time, you know, understanding these authorities and these funding mechanisms, I mean, it's confusing as all get out. I mean, it really is. And uh, and trying to find out, you know, what projects you can do and, and how you can get those projects funded um, for a young uh, civil affairs officer or, or NCO, it's a uh, it's kind of a daunting thing. So so I have worked on on that uh, in, in some capacity. If that answered your question, John. It does. So uh, for the funny aspect, is that something before a team goes uh, in country – you know, who's the point of contact within the State Department who would know what lines of funding are available, or do you go through your DOD point of contact to figure that out? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, I'm not sh- – so, obviously, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be somebody, uh, a country desk officer, uh, if the State Department then would know that. But, again, right, so the State Department is only going to understand and, and really care primarily about, you know, the things that they're funding, those Title II, Title 22 um, funding streams. I mean, really what you need to do is probably talk to somebody um, in the, the three shop um where you're deploying. So, you know, either talk to somebody at AFRICOM or USERAF or uh, CJTFOA if you can. And, you know, that's always a, um, you know, there's a fine line. I say, yes, uh, you know, reach out to those folks. But yet at the same time, you know, all of those staffs are, um, they're undermanned. You know, all of the headquarters recently have taken a, a 20% reduction um, in manpower, but yet the workload hasn't, uh, you know, diminished at all. So, my recommendation would be, um, you know, do, do a Google search, you know, pull up maybe a few of these reports that are out there talking about these different funding streams and, and authorities. And, you know, just get yourself a, a, a basic education on, you know, how some of that kind of works so that, you know, your first exposure um, to this complicated world isn't when you get on the ground and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to navigate through it. At least, you know, if you have a basic understanding and some basic knowledge uh, prior to arrival, I think that would uh, set you up uh, for success. Well, it's obvious to me, and I think the other listeners by now have picked up on this, that your civilian experience with RAND dovetails very well in both ways, I guess, with the military experiences you've had. So, uh, Michael Shulley, I thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thanks for your time. Okay, thanks a lot, John. It was great. I really appreciate it. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.